Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In today's sermon, I'm going to talk about sin. But right up front, by way of disclaimer, I'm not really going to talk about sex. Talk of sin often goes straight to sex, either directly or by implication. You know the old joke, why don't Mennonites have sex standing up? Because it might lead to dancing. (laughs) So don't get me wrong, we do need to talk about sex in church, partly because the church has gotten sex so wrong. That's true whether you're lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, or so-called straight. We've equated sex and sinfulness too much. Sex is one of the most physically intimate interactions that humans can have, and so sex is powerful. And power can be used wisely and unwisely. So we'll talk about sex another day. I'm going to ask you just today, as best you can, to set aside the sex equals sin equation. It's useful for a pastor to say the word sex on the morning of the time change. It it assures me you're awake. Today, though, I want to talk about sin. Even with my disclaimer, I know that sin isn't a popular topic. That's okay. We Episcopalians often avoid talking about sin because we want our church to be welcoming. We want our church to express the deep, loving welcome of God to all people. We don't want folks to feel labeled as sinners or unworthy, and so we don't talk about sin. I identify with this this desire. I want you all to feel deeply welcomed. I want to feel welcome. Here's my worry. If we don't talk about sin, we're not really welcoming. The literal definition of sin is simple, missing the mark. The word sin comes from archery. You sin when you miss the center of the target. We're all a little off target sometimes. We are. If you don't think you miss sometimes, we should talk. As I said, I worry that if we don't acknowledge that we all, all of us are imperfect, that we all sin, we risk presenting ourselves inauthentically. We risk presenting a version of ourself that appears to have it all together. We might walk around trying to look like we're in control. We might only post sunny pictures on Facebook or Instagram, pictures with ice cream and smiles. A group of people who want to look like they have everything in control has a hard time welcoming someone who appears to be a little off kilter. If we're trying hard to maintain the impression of balance, We might not welcome someone who looks like they could disrupt that facade. Trying to look like you've got everything together is nothing new. Take a look at the gospel. Our presiding bishop has a nickname for this story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus under the cover of darkness. He calls the episode, Nick at Night. (laughs) He's into dad jokes, the presiding bishop is. Nicodemus wants Jesus to ask some questions. He's wondering. He might have a bit of a holy hunch. He's thinking, there's something to this, Jesus. 
There's something about the way he talks about God, something about this vision of the beloved community, the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus is not ready to bring his questions out into the light. He's not ready for his friends to comment on his questions. And Jesus is a little evasive with Nicodemus. You must be born from above. I think Jesus is trying to get a rise, trying to get a response from the religious leader. It becomes really clear at the end of their interaction. Unfortunately, the church decided to lop off the last couple verses from this story. I don't know why, but they did. But these are the last words that Jesus says to Nicodemus in chapter 3. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds might not be exposed. And Jesus calls Nicodemus out. He doesn't say it specifically. He doesn't say, see, this is you, Nicodemus. But Nicodemus knows Jesus is talking about him. And the gospel moves on from here to other topics, other stories. And these words leave us wanting more. That's on purpose. We'll come back to Nicodemus. We don't just leave him there in the dark. Sin is a tricky topic. I tried to diffuse one of the big bombs at the beginning of my sermon. We talk about sin and sex too automatically together. But I'm really not going to give you a whole list of sins. Because even without a list, I get the sense that when I mention sin, most of the congregation tunes me out a little bit. I don't mean that the way you might think I do. Often the most important sermon that gets preached in a church on any Sunday morning, it isn't what the person in the robes up front has to say. The sermon that counts is the sermon that you preach to yourself as you pick up a thread or two of what I said. Or better yet, as you mull over something in scripture, a prayer or a hymn. And the sermon you preach to yourself counts more on any given Sunday. When I talk about sin, I get the sense that a lot of folks, they they start preaching their own sermons. I get the sense that many of us start picking at a particularly well-worn thread. Something we've done or left undone that we return to again and again. When sin is mentioned, we return to that sense of guilt. We return to whatever story or circumstance makes us wonder if people knew this about me. If this was out in the light, would I still be welcome? When sin is mentioned, many of us go there. That's okay. It's important. It's part of the journey. As they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step is admitting you have a problem. But don't get stuck on the first step. It's not enough to agonize in the silence of your pew. It's not enough to struggle silently while presenting a brave face to the world. There is too much pretending in our society. Too much pretending that everything is alright. Too much pretending that our lives are under control. Too much pretending that our leaders aren't in over their heads. We try to keep whole parts of ourselves in the darkness and only show off the polished bits in the light. I'm not going to list out a bunch of sins today. I do want to talk about one in particular. 
pride. It's a sin I know well. A lot of pastors do. Something about being weakly in front of a group who have to listen to your words. That's a sin I know well. I get the sense that pride is at the heart of Nicodemus' interaction with Jesus. And pride is a tricky vice. If we're not able to say out loud that we are sinners, if we're not able to look at the arrows in the target and admit, yeah, that one off to the right, that one's mine. Oh, and that one back there in the grass behind the target, that's mine too. If we're not able to claim, yes, I'm a sinner, then it makes it really hard to figure out how the gospel is good news. And there's a word for those who can't bear to look at their faults. Hubris. When you put yourself at the center of your universe, when you can't admit any flaws, you're in danger. That kind of pride has been feeding great playwrights from Sophocles on down. History bears it out. Pride goeth before the fall. In my estimation, the best theological definition of sin is in the human community is this. Sin is whatever diminishes the humanity of another or my own humanity. There's a theology at the heart of that, a sense of what God is about. God intends life and life in abundance for creation. We all miss that goal at times. We all participate in activity, personal and social, that diminishes life. We all neglect to build up sometimes. We all hurt one another. And all of us, all of us have some patterns that are self-destructive. We all miss the point. So what do you do about sin? Amidst all Jesus' mysterious language with Nicodemus, there's a moment that was probably very clear to the religious leader. Nicodemus knew his Torah. Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This story comes from the book of Numbers. While the people of Israel are wandering through the wilderness, they encounter poisonous snakes. God's not really happy with the people at this moment. But still, God tells Moses to make a brazen serpent, a bronze snake, and to raise it up high on a pole. When the people are bitten, they simply look on the snake. They will be healed. Still, some of God's stubborn people refuse the help. They don't look up. Jesus compares the Son of Man to this serpent raised up in the wilderness. He says that likewise, the Son of Man must be lifted up. If Nicodemus is going to understand what Jesus means for our world, if he's going to answer his questions, satisfy his hunch, he's going to have to lift up his eyes. He's going to have to let go of his need to appear as if he's got everything under control. Nicodemus needs to let go of his pride. Unless he can let go of his sense that he's already got it, he will never get Jesus. As you read on in the Gospel of John, you'll notice Nicodemus returns. The first time he comes back is in chapter 7. He comes to Jesus' defense in public 
in front of the other religious authorities. Then in chapter 19, Nicodemus returns again. This time he's with Joseph of Arimathea, secret disciple. And he's there to help with Jesus' burial. Here at the end of the gospel, Jesus, or the, here at the end of the gospel, the writer reminds us who Nicodemus was at the beginning. He says, this is the man who first came to Jesus by night. At the end of the story, Nicodemus helps wrap Jesus' body in linen with spices. Somewhere off screen, somewhere off stage, something shifted for Nicodemus. Something that Jesus said to him, something about this interaction caused Nicodemus to question. I started off by saying that I don't like talking about sin because I don't want anyone to feel like they're unwelcome. Jesus didn't share my qualms. Jesus knew better. He usually does. When Nicodemus appeared, Jesus welcomed him. Jesus' welcome also challenged Nicodemus. Yes, Nicodemus, you are welcome, Jesus is saying. But you don't have to hang out there in the dark. Here, you don't have to have all the right answers. You don't have to present only the parts of yourself that are ready for the spotlight. All of you is welcome. All of you, everything you have done and left undone is welcome. When Jesus was lifted up, his arms were outstretched, as St. Anselm said, so that all the world might be able to come within his saving embrace. Jesus' arms are wide enough for all of your story. Do you believe that? Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey, you don't need to hang out in the shadows. You don't need to let your pride keep you from sharing your wounds. You have come to a fellowship of sinners. Everyone who comes up to this table at Holy Communion is a sinner. We all miss the target, sometimes by a little, sometimes by a lot. We all hurt our fellow creatures. From time to time, we also hurt ourselves. That's why we need this church. It's why we need this table Sin is why we need Jesus. Friends, this is good news. We come here looking for healing, looking for love. We find a welcome that embraces us and challenges us. God's welcome is challenging. It challenges us to step out of the shadows. God's welcome challenges us to quit pretending, to see our fellow sinners and to say, if this Jesus welcomed me, he can welcome you. Yes, even you. My prayer this Lent is that each of us, like Nicodemus, can know Jesus' challenging welcome a bit more fully. Amen.